0: Right. Hello, everybody. Good. Good to see you. My name is Luke. Welcome to all of our people at every campus and watching online. Hello, Mountain Road. Are you awake today? Alive today? Ready to go? Welcome to week three of Run With It. Um, you probably already are getting the sense that this is kind of a big deal. Some of you know that. Some of you have been in the race a long time around here. Some of you maybe are just now beginning to sense that the baton is coming around the track and God is prompting you to uh, begin running with it. No matter who you are, it's true for all of us that none of us were here 199 years ago when this multi-generational marathon began at Mountain. But nevertheless, all of us right now have an opportunity to carry forward the good work that God started here. And we go with, I think, that same confidence that's in the opening address in Philippians. The New Testament writer Paul, he spoke to them very confidently and said, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you all, is going to be faithful, to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's confidence rightly placed in our God. God who is faithful, God who is good, God who is trustworthy, and that's the God who calls us forward today. As we go, you're going to be helped by a few things in your hands. One might be a Bible, and then one might be this, um, this guide. If you don't have one of these, you can raise your hand and someone will... I think I'm not lying when I say someone will walk around and and give one of these So you. Just raise your hand and we'll put one of these booklets there. If you flip through that, you can see some chronicles of our two centuries of history. You can see some recent history, which is very exciting, and then even a nod toward the future, which we've begun to imagine together. I'm on page 33. There's a place to take notes there. If you want to access the guidebook digitally, you can do that at uh, the website, unstoppablegood.church. And then also pay attention. You can... Get going with God daily. Text RUN to 94062. You can have a text message and a reflection and get into God's Word all month long, following along with that as well. You Ready to run? Okay, maybe the metaphor is making you tired already. I don't know, but we're going to go. And if you jump into Genesis 13, you're going to notice there's enough to intrigue you, I think, right from the get-go. Some of it is very obvious, and we'll start right on the surface and then just work our way down. First thing you notice as you begin reading in Genesis 13, you're reading about a family who became very wealthy as they were pursuing God's purpose for them. Read the first two sentences, and you discover that right away. I think that's probably interesting to most of us. Like, Yeah, tell me more about that. I'd like to know. Is this a how-to book? It might be especially interesting to you if maybe you were up late one night and a TV preacher came on and told you that you too could become wealthy by following God's plan for you. Maybe this is the recipe right here will be left to wonder for a moment. But just to say, right off the bat, that's something you notice right on the surface as you head into this part of the Bible. Now, just below that, if you probe a little bit further, something else quite interesting is that this is a family led by a man who's fresh off an experience where he did the wrong thing and got the right results. Ben talked about this some last week. This is a family. Uh, they, they go and seek help in a new land. Once there, the man pawns off his wife as his sister in hopes of commanding a handsome dowry. Some hijinks that hoodwinks the king of the land and creates quite a stir when the king takes her. But in the end, in spite of all that, the man not only gets his wife back, but ends up richer as a result. The wrong thing led to what seemed like right results. This is very curious to me because, number one, I got kids, and that's not the way that I've told them the world works. So, no, if you cheat, it's going to go bad for you. If you're careless, it doesn't lead to something good. That's how it goes. When you're mean, when you're lazy, when you're cowardly, it doesn't work out well for you. Number two, it's interesting because I know there are a number of people who come to church with this nagging guilt and a belief that you've done too many wrong things. And there are plenty more people who don't come to church for that same reason. And you yourself might have this fear that what's right, what's good, is no longer available to you because of your infractions and your misdemeanors along the way. You think maybe you're dq from the race. And then third, this raises my antenna because I'm much more familiar with and frustrated with the opposite situation where I do what I think are the right things and get wrong results surely you know what that's like as well like you're praying like you're supposed to to no avail it seems you're kind then you get dumped on all the more you tell the truth and everyone hates you life's not fair this experience is enshrined in the bible as well we're in genesis 13 right now but genesis ends with 13 chapters following the life of joseph who is not an all the time noble guy but there are distinct occasions where he does the right thing but gets some really awful results for a time to the point that we're left wondering what is God doing with all of this and we're wondering basically the same thing right here in Genesis 13 what is God doing with this situation which is equally puzzling even if more fortunate for those who are involved and who are those involved I haven't said their names yet but if you've begun reading in Genesis 13 or if you've been around we are talking about who Yep, Abram later turned Abraham, and Sarai later turned Sarah, his wife, or sister, depending on what day it is. (laughs) And their nephew Lot is with them as well. We're not quite sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we'll dig into more of that today. And this family is kind of a big deal. Like, you really got to know who they are if you're going to understand the Bible, you see, when you realize that you're in the part of the Bible that has to do with Abraham and Sarah, then that points to something deeper going on that you've got to be aware of as you begin this chapter in Genesis 13. Like I said, yeah, right there, you've got those interesting features of family becoming wealthy, doing the right things, the, or doing the wrong things for the right results. Uh, but the most intriguing thing, when you get into Genesis 13, is that this whole story stems from a God who says, I will. The whole reason that this part of the Bible exists is because of a God who intervened and said, "I'm going to do something here." That's what's giving the energy and the momentum for things to move forward. The drama results because God put himself on the hook. God made some promises. Said, "I will." God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to get in the mess. Now, sure, the situation, according to Genesis, was such that the world, the people of the world, the cultures of the world, did not honor God as creator, did not acknowledge him, did not follow him. All of God's people were doing their own thing, but it's not a happy Sesame Street tune. It's leading to disorder and chaos and death. So God made a move. And according to the Bible, it is one of the most significant moments in human history, a monumental plot point in the Bible, and it happened when God promised to bless Abraham and Sarah's family with land and children in particular, so that through them, the whole world would be blessed. All peoples, all cultures, all nations would be blessed. That was Genesis 12. Abraham and Sarah, are not perfect, as we've seen. They didn't do anything to earn themselves this opportunity. They wouldn't be a big deal at all if God didn't show up and do this big thing and say, I will do, I will make, I will bless, I will give. What kind of a God is this? Well, by Genesis 13, we already know this is a God who's in it for good. I'm not trying to be cute in saying that. I know it's the tagline to unstoppable good. And the encouragement is for us to all say that ourselves. But it's not even worth considering saying, I'm in it for good, if God hasn't said that first. When you get to this part of the Bible, understand, God has made his commitment known. When you wind yourself through the rest of the Bible, understand, God's commitment has already been made public. When you consider what it means for you to take a step of faith in this moment, from wherever you are, with whatever baggage you have, to whatever God is calling you to to go forward because you're not DQ'd from the race, understand, God's in it for good. He's playing for keeps. He's the God who says, I will. I I found I need to rehearse that. It's not just rhetoric. it's, It's relevant for me. I need to hold on to that. Especially as I hold into my hands one of these, Uh, it's a commitment card, and and no one's turning it in today, and it's a really strange thing, a very unfamiliar idea probably for a number of us to think that among the ways that I would express that I'm in it for good, that I would put myself on the hook for a financial commitment that extends out into the future, I mean, that's no small thing. I was thinking about the kinds of commitments that I like to make, maybe you make, These kinds of things, too, where somebody asks you to do something or help with something, and you say, yeah, I'll I'll keep that in mind when the time comes. It's not a full commitment. The the promise is, well, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I I will factor it in, but I want to see how other events play out first. I'm not willing to prioritize the thing that you're asking me to do right in this moment. I gotta see how much energy I might have and see what other things take up my time, see what else might capture my interest between now and then. It's very possible that I will do the thing that you're asking me to do, but we'll just have to see. And sometimes we approach giving in that same way. I have to see how other events play out first. I'm hesitant to prioritize it in this moment even as we know it doesn't work like that with the rent or the mortgage or the utilities, even as we know we can't do it like that with the wedding invitation. You get that RSVP card and you hold that in your hand and it's talking about an event that's like six months out into the future. I mean, who plans that far ahead? But you're being asked to put yourself on the hook right now because somebody's daddy is paying for a party and there's no option to check, well, I'll see what else I got going on that day. I miss other priorities I might have. No, you're being asked, are you in? And then you aim your life toward what you said you would do. And Unstoppable Good for the last year has been prompting that kind of a response. Allow your faith to take the form of making a commitment to do good with your finances. Toward all, all of the stuff that's in the book, That all the things we've been talking about, open about where the money's going. It's not about the church as a separate organization getting rich as if the church is somehow distinct from all of the people who are listening right now. No, it's about the richness of the church, of us people being put into play for the blessing of the world. And thus the invitation to throw in with that, to put yourself on the hook, to make this a priority. Knowing, believing, trusting that God has already gone first. God's commitment has already been made public. God has prioritized his people. God has prioritized his commitment to bless the world. We're rooting ourselves again in that story. The whole thing started with a God who said, I will. Are we people ready to declare the same? We're going to observe how Abraham sorts through that in Genesis 13. But first, hear from some people in our own community uh, who have been working that out in their own lives. Take a look at their story.
1: 2008, 2008, I started Mountain Single Mom. Um, sat in the back row. I had gone through a divorce and just full of a lot of shame. Um, Ed and I started dating, and we knew immediately that Mountain was gonna need to be part of our story together. We needed to be in church on Sunday. Ed also had gone through a divorce. Um, So I think the first part of our career at Mountain was sitting in the back row, um, full of shame, full of um, fear of what the future was gonna be for us.
0: We're that couple that sat in the back row and uh snuck in and also snuck out, you know, before service is over and uh, just, you know, yeah, just going through life that way. Um, but we knew we wanted to be a part of it, but it, just, it was gonna take time.
1: Yeah. I, I might oversay this, but it's a safe place to land. It's just a safe place for someone who has been hurt in another church or had a bad experience with God growing up or, you know, in a family that was preaching. Um, maybe not doing the right thing, um, but it's it's just a place where all are welcome. All are, all are so welcome. So we had our journey with giving and being committed with like Cannonball or other initiatives. Um, we would put like both feet in on that Sunday and be like, yes, we're gonna do it, and then. We would like, oh we'd like back out, we like, no, it's a big commitment. We don't know if we can do it. For us financially, it we have been in an incredible amount of debt and just from divorces and all of that. Ten percent was like like we had like 010 percent to give at the end of each paycheck. So the giving we knew in our heart we wanted to give um, more and be strategic about it and follow God's word. And when that's how good came, it was like pray about it and think about this and That Friday night commitment night we had the card I put the number down and I was like he was like do it I'm like let's do it so we did and we stuck the card in there and and we were like we don't know how it's gonna work but we know that we know that we are both feet in and God's gonna God's gonna show us like we just commit to him because everything we have is his everything we have is his and and we knew that we just wanted to be in that place of humility where um and trust trust was a big part of being stretched and what has happened since that little card went in that slot it's like just so many things that god has blessed us and we did not do it for a blessing we didn't do it we did it because we wanted to be lined up with god's will we're just tired of not feeling like we're giving it our all it hasn't been hard it hasn't it really has not been hard and and it's because I think it was the one thing in our spiritual growth. It was that one thing that we weren't doing. We were serving, we were going to church, we were plugging in, we were doing all of it. We were not committing our finances back to the church, back to the Lord. But we'd gone from that back row, we're now in the front row, hands in the air, tears rolling down our face. Yeah, it's made a difference. If I was a new person coming in, hearing about this, I, I, would, I would just, Im- implore someone to just trust us trust this process trust what this leadership has prayed over and done so much to to move into the next whatever god has for mountain moving forward and it's going to be amazing everything we have comes from him and we give him back what he's already given us so again i think trust is a huge part of it and trusting our church trusting that this wasn't something that they just, you know, came up with on a whim that was prayed over and thought over. And um, but, but most importantly, between you and the Lord, God will show you. And He has shown us, and He will do the same for you. Believe me. He did it for us. He'll do it for you.
0: All right. I love those guys. Yeah. know they'll probably hate watching themselves on the screen there, but it is good for us to hear that story. It's an encouragement to all of us. Sherry said at the end, God did it for us. He'll do it for you. Again, the conviction, God will. Everything is grounded in God's I will. Ever since Genesis 12, God has been making his commitment known. And that leads us into Genesis 13. Go there if you have a Bible, Genesis 13. We've already uh, begun to see how it starts. And this is 13, beginning in verse 1 and 2. So so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, that's the land where God had promised him, with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Again, this is right after Abram almost fumbled everything away with the whole she's just my sister thing in Egypt. And you start to appreciate like the, the tenuous nature of this. You appreciate the, predicament that God finds himself in when he makes promises. God says, I will, and he binds himself to these human partners and they agree to the plan, but the humans have the freedom to say, I won't, or I will do it my own way. This is who God is working with. And yet, incredibly, Abram's family plunders the Egyptians. They're carrying off all of their wealth in their own pockets. Now that'll ring a bell for Bible readers who know that the Exodus was when God carried his people out of Egypt after plundering the Egyptians. You may have heard about that. That's the plagues and the parting of the sea. That's later on in the story where God will prove his ability to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. This is a prequel, a showcase of just what this God is capable of. So this is not trying to justify deceptive behavior on Abraham's part. It's not holding Abram up as a model of morality that we're supposed to follow. This is calling us to consider what kind of a God is this? What kind of a God is this that his promised blessing can't be undone even when it's subject to the will of fickle people? Verse 5, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, he also had flocks and herds and tents, But the land couldn't support them while they stayed together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. I got a big problem here. My wallet's too small for all my $100 bills. What kind of a God is this who blesses beyond measure? What kind of a God is this who provides over and above what we could engineer on our own? This is a God who's serious when he says, I will bless, I will give. Maybe scheming and deceiving and always feeling like I got to work to save my own hide, maybe that's not the best way to partner with this God. You ever had a realization like that before? Maybe I should stop trying to do it my own way. Maybe I should trust God. Maybe God really will give me the peace and the courage to do the difficult but right thing. Maybe God really will provide if we prioritize him with our finances. Maybe God really will give me peace if I stop trying to define myself by what I accomplish. What kind of a God is this? He might just be who he says he is. He might just do what he said he'll do. Those are the things that seem to be clicking into place for Abram at this point in Genesis 13. Kind of finds himself in a more money, more problem situation. He's got his growing camp and Lot's growing camp and they're bumping into each other. Go, uh, verse seven. It says quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. More on that a little bit later. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have quarreling. Between you and me, between your herders and mine. We're close relatives. Look, the the whole land is before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Giving them first choice. That's a big deal when you're a kid, I know, right? The first choice. There's, There's quarreling in my house all the time when there are choices to be made and things to be divvied out among five kids. Walk in the house with a box full of donuts. Everybody's jockeying for their selection. I'll tell you what's never happened is nobody ever said, oh, you take the first one, brother. <laughs> now, thankfully, we all grow out of that kind of behavior when we become adults. <laughs> Abram, at least, is showing some signs of growth. He's not scheming. He's not going to let his poor choices of the past define him in the present. And he's not going to be trapped in a scarcity mindset that leads him to clutch and control as if there's never going to be enough when you're following God. But rather, he knows that God's word to him is, I will. And so he opens his hands. And remember the specifics. God said, I will give you children and this land. So Abram is being open-handed with quite a lot here. Okay, follow this. We said that the Bible isn't uh, explicit about whether Lot coming along with them was a good thing or a bad thing. God did tell Abram, leave your father's household behind. Abram didn't do that entirely because he brought Lot along. And God never outright scolds him. But you can't help but wonder if, for Abram, Lot is an insurance policy. Remember, he's old with no kids, and so is his wife. At least we'll have someone, my nephew, to carry on the family line if this whole God-promise thing doesn't work out. Well, not anymore. Because Abram said, you can go. No more insurance policy. And likewise with the land. It's all out there, the whole box of donuts. And Abram says to Lot, Tell me what part you will take. I'm trusting the God who says, I will give. I'm going to prioritize God's promise over my control. I like to control, and I like the idea of walking in step with God. Genesis 13 ends with Abram and Lot going their two ways. And it's quite interesting how that echoes uh, the whole rest of the biblical story and the whole human condition, really. Track this down. Lot sees a land. And it's outside the promised land. It looks really good to him. Looks like the garden of the Lord. Now, the text is clear. It wasn't what it seemed. It looked lush, but it's rife with sin and wickedness. And Lot goes to the east to take it. Can I think of another time where someone in a garden saw something that looked good to them, but it wasn't what it seemed, and taking it led them east, out of the good land. If Adam and Eve were here, they would tell you, don't do it. It's a flashback, and it's a flash forward because The direction that Lot goes is toward Sodom. And the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah is a story for another day, but you may already know it looked good, but it was not good. And to this day, many people still go that way, metaphorically speaking. But we conclude with following Abram. Chapter 13 concludes like this. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Now look around from where you are, to the north and the south and the east and the west. Look at all the land that you see. I will give it to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go and walk through the land, the length and the breadth of it, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. And there he built an altar to the Lord. An altar to the God who says, I will. Now notice, it's still future tense. He got to go and look at all of the land. But we saw that little comment earlier. The locals are still there. Abram's still just pitching his tent as a guest for right now. Everything's not all settled and resolved here. Lot goes down the path that looks really good. Abram goes down the path marked by obvious and present tensions. Yet it is the path of obedience. It is the path in line with God's promises. Is obedience to God more likely to resolve tensions or increase them? Now, sure, Abram resolved one thing. His herders and Lot's herds, they're not all bumping into each other. But now that Lot's gone, it's just Abram and his family there. Foreigners in a land where nobody's throwing out the welcome mat. Surely Abram has already noticed the neighbors aren't worshiping the God that I claim to know. They don't speak my language. They don't do things like people do where I come from. And I'm sure they're not going to love the suggestion that this land is being promised to me. Do I really want to raise a family here? Oh, yeah, a family. God, I'm not getting any younger, and neither is my barren wife. When is your I will going to become an I did? None of those tensions are resolved at the end of Genesis 13. And yet, while Abram sleeps under a temporary tent, he builds a permanent altar to the Lord. Yeah, I'm not proud of everything I've done. No, I haven't always gotten it right. But let these stones be a witness that God is not done with me yet, and I'm not done with him either. My hopes and dreams for the land, they're still off in the distance and there are many obstacles in the way. My desires for a son to carry on my legacy and to fulfill the promise of God, it's not yet materialized. Obedience hasn't led to instant gratification. And I don't know how it's all going to work out or when it's all going to work out or how much energy or faith or struggle is going to be required of me. All I know is that God said, I will. And I'm not going to say I won't. Let this altar declare, even with everything not figured out, I'm in it for good. So no, this is not a how-to-get-rich-following-God story. Abram is wealthy. But the blessing of God in his life is more than anything intended to reveal the generosity of God, the character of God. And his blessing was intended for the blessing of others. And the same is true for anyone who experiences God's blessing. God's purpose in blessing... In in whatever form, financially or otherwise. God's purpose in blessing is so that it would go to you and through you. Standing in front of the altar, Abram reaffirms his desire to be a part of that. And that's exactly what we have the opportunity to affirm in this moment individually and collectively. And that's why we're reminding ourselves of this amazing story that God has been writing through this church, that we have an opportunity and a blessing really to be a part of carrying that forward. It's all part of God's bigger story because the God who said I will is the God who said I did in Jesus. And here we are with a chance to respond, to say we want to be a part of the future that God is bringing about. And not everything is resolved. There are obstacles. When you obey God, there are plenty of tensions to navigate. And again, we feel that collectively. We feel that individually. I don't have to tell you. All of us have our own stuff. We heard from Ed and Sherry early and how they're going on their journey. We all have our own journey to take. Some of us, like Abram, might be wealthy, in livestock and silver and gold or whatever. Some of us are wealthy in other ways. Some of us might flat out say, "I'm poor. And that's a significant part of what's creating the tensions that you're facing right now. And among us, we have all kinds of different situations. We have debts and obligations. We have dreams. We've done some things right. We've done plenty of things wrong. But the only kind of people that God partners with and makes promises to are people like us. When you get into this part of the Bible, you already know God has made his commitment known. The question is, are we ready to do the same? So may you remind yourself of the story, of the story of this church, the story of the whole church, and the whole story of what God is doing. May you make the commitment card a matter of prayer. And like the stones of Abraham's altar, may be something that you'll use to say, I'm in it for good. And consider what other ways God is calling you to make God a priority, to to literally establish God in your life in the same way that Abraham established an altar in a new land. Making God a priority might mean you need to turn away from some things that look good but aren't. It might mean embracing some tensions and some waiting. But if you do that, you might just meet the God of Abraham. The God who is who he says he is and who does what he says he will do. Let's pray. God, thank you for the ways that you have been faithful and for the encouragement that you have brought to us as we have rehearsed your story today. Thank you that we get to be a part of it. Thank you that you are God of our ancestors, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are the God of Jesus, and yet you are God here today, present and with us, patient with us, nurturing us along. God, we come before you mindful that you know all of the stuff that we've gotten wrong and all the stuff we've gotten right. We come to you honestly today. Pray that we would be able to hear your voice calling us forward, to uh, withstand any, any suggestion that we're somehow disqualified or that we, we have no part to play in what you're doing in the world. We do crave your blessing. We crave your presence. We want to know you. But let that work itself out so that any blessing that comes to us would flow through us. For your name's sake, for the blessing of the world, for the good of those around us, we want to be a part of that. Thank you for the assurance that you're with us. Thank you for the assurance that you're working and that you don't waste anything. Use us today, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.